There's value in making mistakes. We talked about this earlier. You want to kind of try things. And there's no between trying new things and taking risks. The truth is most millennials, the type of people that companies really want to hire, crave and need feedback. But you can be honest and it can be kind. It doesn't mean it always has to be what they want to hear, but you can deliver it in a kind way, right? And giving developmental constructive feedback is actually much kinder than not telling people what they're doing wrong. And I think creating a culture where people feel safe giving uncomfortable feedback and know that they're not going to be punished for it and also know that they're not going to be punished for making mistakes all the time obviously you know you make the same mistake over and over again like that's that's an issue but i would challenge the idea that you can't be kind and give honest constructive feedback and always try to get better and welcome to everyday leadership a podcast where you get to listen and learn how to lead yourself personally and professionally through the lessons and life experiences my guests share in the hope that it challenges and inspires you to lead yourself from the inside out and not the outside in. On today's episode of Real Leadership, I have the pleasure of talking to Matt Huffman, who is a partner and head of talent at M13, uh, who are for me personally anyway, uh, one of the good VC firms out there that actually like I'm tapping into. They've invested in hundreds and hundreds of companies like Green, Q, Slack, Snapchat, just to name a few. Um, but they're actually very, very different in the way that they approach um, startups. So it's not just about, yep, we're going to give you money and that's it. But they actually lead into a number of experts like Matt and kind of help you to create teams that help you make better decisions. So it's like your money's working smarter, not just harder. And I think that's kind of what I really liked about um, M13. And Matt is has been a VP of people, DigitalOcean, Return Path, companies that are what? Number one and number two in the US when it comes to great places to work. Um, so you know we're gonna delve into a number of questions around what it creates to see, what what it takes to create a great team. But prior to that, he's worked in corporate, JP Morgan Chase, Avon, and high growth startups are, are his thin as well as holding advisory and board roles. So Matt, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here today. Thank you. That's the best intro I ever got. You really, that's the best uh, description of the company I've seen and I appreciate it. I will also just add to kind of humble brag for a super quick site because it's mostly about to me. We also, even at M13, were recently named the best place to work in LA in New York. Um, so we'll talk about that. We'll talk about like why creating great places to work actually lead to great outcomes and great performance. But thank you so much. That's a wonderful introduction. Oh, wow. I'm I'm curious now. I want to start it's a completely different place. Everywhere you've got the last three companies you worked with, you won a lot of awards about great place to work. And as someone who works in Thailand or looks after people, obviously you've had a massive play to it, massive part to play in that. So has this all been driven by you and you interceded? Like, what's been that key? Because you're the common denominator in all three organizations. People leader will tell you is you can be the most amazing HR leader with the best ideas. And if you don't get your senior leadership to buy into them, it doesn't matter. So it all starts at the top. So I've been really, really lucky that I've worked with some amazing CEOs and some amazing founders. I've worked twice with um, both the COO at DigitalOcean and now managing partner in, here at M13. And he's played a, an extraordinary role in creating this great culture and creates a situation. But it's always the CEO and the founders. And I'm so blessed to work with two amazing founders partners, Carter and Courtney Ream at M13, which really kind of lay the foundation for everything. So what, what people like me do is we create the container 
for great cultures. We figure out how to make sure we're giving good feedback, to be honest, to be kind, to focus on people's development, to make sure that any benefits or things that you're doing are really focused on the right type of stuff that people actually care about. But the leaders have to walk the walk and talk the talk. And I've been very, very lucky to work with amazing CEOs and, and leaders who've done that at Return Path Digital Initiative. Being honest and being kind don't always go together, especially especially in a startup environment where fast-paced, a lot of pressure sometimes, things just moving and shifting completely into that chaos on a regular basis. How do you and your leadership team actually create that culture where you can do that? Yeah, it takes more time to give like really good feedback. But what I would tell you is it also takes time if people don't do their best work or people screw up and nobody told them how to do things differently. Like that takes time too in a fast-paced environment. And so what I always think is like I'm a big, big believer in feedback. The truth is most millennials, the type of people that companies really want to hire, crave and need feedback. But you can be honest and it can be kind. It doesn't mean it always has to be what they want to hear, but you can deliver it in a kind way, right? And giving developmental constructive feedback is actually much kinder than not telling people what they're doing wrong. That was a huge tenet of uh, Kim Scott's book, Radical Candor, and you can actually do some things in there. Um, you can actually take that approach in lots of ways. There's lots of ways to do that. And I think creating a culture where people feel safe giving uncomfortable feedback and know that they're not going to be punished for it and also know that they're not going to be punished for making mistakes all the time. Obviously, you know, you make the same mistake over and over again, like that's that's an issue. But I would challenge the idea that you can't be kind and give honest, constructive feedback and always try to get better. One of our founders always says, if you only get 1% better every day, which doesn't seem that hard to do, like you're going to be three times better by the end of the year. And that stuff compounds out. So that all starts with a culture of development development and feedback and we we take that stuff seriously we think it's really really important for you and your journey um i'm curious like, where did that actually begin so i'm actually gonna go way back to a younger matt okay um, i want to go back to all right that was a while I ago go back to a teenage matt like what was, what was that teenage matt like <laughs> uh teenage matt was pretty different than i was now i didn't probably take like school as seriously as as i should have like what teenager does back then I was doing some of the similar things. Like I really was involved in like clubs and service things where I wanted to help people. You know, I played a little bit of sports, a little bit of school, like school theater, like all, all kind of the stuff that like teenagers would normally do. It wasn't really, but I didn't take any of it seriously because I was an idiot, you know, teenager in high school, like, like most teenage guys, right? It wasn't really until college where I really kind of figured out like what I want to do and what I like and found thing I was passionate about. I didn't really find that in high school but in college I kind of took this course around like behavioral economics and that kind of helped me understand like I really am interested in like the psychology of how people work I mean I kind of fell in love with that because it just kind of made sense you know just seeing kind of my my parents you know as a kid when I was growing up seeing my parents and like they didn't have like great work environments and they didn't feel like respected and treated and I know you know both my parents were really smart but never felt like they got the best out of their work and didn't have the right environment to do their best work and I think unconsciously I realized like I want to create a place where people can do their best work because it's so important and it's so critical. Um, and then when I discovered that in college, I'm like, I want to do that. So I ended up going for my doctorate in psychology and organizational psychology. And I really got into kind of studying how people do their best work and how you create environments to get the best out of people. You know, and spoiler alert, it's not treating them like crap and scaring them to death to do their best work. It's a great environment where people are passionate, people are excited. And uh, that's what I've always kind of strove to create. And I've worked at really big, big organizations and I've worked at smaller ones. And my personal preference is to work at smaller ones because you could have more of an impact. You can kind of change things in a way that doesn't require 
require a lot of politicking and bureaucracy. And I've just kind of flourished and thrived, hopefully, since since I've been a kind of earlier stage company and now working on a platform stage at a VC firm. Do you have any desires of actually creating your own your own firm and building since you like building so much? You know, I do like building stuff. I don't know that I have the entrepreneur gene in me. I like working with teams and people and this entrepreneur founder journey is is a solo journey and i'm i'm not the biggest risk taker i'm, I'm fairly risk averse i actually have such respect for the founders uh, that i work with every day because i don't know that i could do it i'm kind of the guy you bring in when you just figured things out and you're ready to build it and scale but i'm not the guy that comes in and builds it in the beginning and that's okay like i think it's really important to know what you're good at and what you're not good at and some people are natural born entrepreneurs and you know, there's things that I think I'm good at when it comes to building, but I most enjoy working with other people. I don't really like working by myself, which is one of the reasons I've never been a consultant either. I like working with uh, people every day and building relationships. Okay. What are some of the things that you've, I guess, discovered about yourself, especially when you think about being in college, doing psychology and, and going through that to even going past the corporate into the startup space and really applying a lot of the principles that you really, really learned when it comes to building organizations with other people what things that have changed along that journey because i think that's really really important as to how i see the world right now as well yeah i am i mean it's a really thoughtful question i think for me one of the things i've realized is, is kind of words somewhere like i don't like going out things solo i do my best work when i'm working with other people it's really important to me to work with people i trust like I said, I'm not good at like the political side of things. And so if I don't have like deep trust with someone I work, I'm just, it's going to be really hard for me. I'm not able to be like yeah, authentic in that way. I'm not good at that particular skill. So people that you care about and like and trust for me is really, really important that I, I can't work in an environment like that. And, you know, just in my personal life too, like I'm, I'm too old to not be around like people that really have like a meaningful connection to and, and I care about and trust. Um, so my, my circle has gotten smaller in a lot of ways, but it's also gotten deeper. And obviously your family, of course, you know, coming first. Can you do a father of what, three daughters? I know, it's crazy, right? <laughs> what, like what? It's a lot. It's really a lot. What's parenting taught you? You know, it's kind of a cliche and everyone says this, but you don't realize it until it actually happens. But when you are raising kids and responsible for lives, like you see things through their eyes and it gives you such perspective. Like, you know, my parents are no longer alive now, but I understand so much more about them now that I'm doing the things that they had to do. And everyone says a cliche, oh, wait up till you grow up, you're going to be just like your mom, just like your dad. And you know, to some extent that's true, but I just see things, there's a different perspective around kind of looking through the eyes of, of seeing someone else do it and, and caring about how they grow and the decisions they make. And it changes your own priorities too. For me, everything is about kind of creating a better environment, a better world for my kids. Certainly when the stuff I do in the world of business around like, how can I hopefully impact in some way the type of business world that I want them to grow up in and I want them to work in. So for my professional life, it impacts the way I do things. But, you know, on a personal level, which I think is what you're asking is, it's just amazing to see things through the eyes of like young, young girls turning into women growing up and it changes your entire perspective about how you look at things. At least for me, it did. I feel love the way that you kind of describe it because it's a lot of times it's what's happening in our personal life can actually influence what's happening in our professional life in a sense and how we begin to view things. Maybe you show up in different ways, but you bring the same beliefs, you bring the same values in. And, you know, I'm not a big believer in a, it's not personal, it's business mentality. Like everything is personal. You're, you're dealing with human beings. It doesn't mean that you make hard decisions, but I just, I've never been able to separate the two. And 
I've found some of my like deepest friends from people I've worked with and I've hired friends that I work with and it's it's important like you're spending so much time like the person you are shows up in, in all sorts of different ways but I think it's really important to be consistent in that way. So do you then believe that it's possible to have work-life balance or do you think that that's a, it's a fallacy in a sense of chasing the impossible and then you have to come free or what's for you? I don't think balance is the right word. I think you have to prioritize different things at a different time. I think it's important to have a healthy integration between the two. You know, I'm obviously, I'm, I'm doing this from my office in my home, so I don't go into a traditional office regularly. So I'm around my family a lot and that's worked really well. You know, I drive my kids to school every morning. Um, if I have to be there for them, I will make the time to do that. And that means that I'll probably work later most days in traditional hours, but I balance that out with the flexibility I have to be with my family when I need me during the day. And that works great for me. Like I really, really like it. I actually really struggle with under traditional constraints of a, of a nine to five office, I think for the most part. So there are some trade-offs I make because I said like I I work later hours and part of that is a lot of my team is based out of Los Angeles and I'm, I'm in New York. But for me, like it's integrated in a way that works for me and hopefully I'm able to make the trade-offs in a way where I'm not overcompensating all the time. Look, there are times where like you really got to like hunker down at work and it's a big project or something really critical or something for a portfolio and I've got to focus and do that and I'm going to spend more time there. But there are other times when, you know, my family's really born and I'm going to make sure that I'm there as well and I'm comfortable making those trade-offs. Um, so it's not about the balance because it's never fully 50-50 or whatever it is. But I, I hope I've been lucky enough that I've been able to figure out a way to integrate the two. And I do think it's kind of where the world's moving. It's why more and more people are getting excited about remote work. And, you know, they recognize that there are ways that you can kind of manage things that don't have to be like the way it used to be before. And for me, it enables me to do my best work and hopefully be the best parent and dad I can be. And I think other people are finding that it's actually able to make them better at what they do rather than kind of giving up something. And that's how I do. That's how I kind of balance it or integrate it uh, to your question. Have you seen that tension play out between people who believe exactly that, that remote work gives you that flexibility, that freedom, where people is just, it's now about the performance rather than just physically being there versus, I want to say that all the people who, not necessarily eight, but very much like, let's get people back into the office and people need to be here to, for them to be seen. Have you seen some of that tension play out? There are a lot of people who believe that you're not working as hard if you're not in the office. And I think it's a it's a matter of control more than anything else. You know, every research I've seen shows that people are more productive when they're working remotely. If anything, there's more of a problem which you never stop working when you're home because your computer's right there. You wake up, you do it, whether your phone or anything else. So if anything, the research has shown that people work more when they're not in the office. So I do think there is some control. I think there's just some aversion to change. I think there's a little bit of, we spent all this money in the office for people coming in. You know, what's, what's interesting about that is most of the early stage companies I see starting choose not to have an office. Um, because they know that they can just get better work, get better people. They figure out a way to build that connection. Really, the return to the office is people who've already committed to having an office, which I think is an interesting one, is that most of the new companies are not being based on a service sum, and I think it works differently for different people, and it's cool to know that, and you should be really clear about what works for you, and you should hire and select and all that stuff for the right people. I know a lot of people say, like, it's better for collaboration, um, it's better for certain types of work. That's true, but most of the time, you're not collaborating at work. Most of the time, you know, for a lot of times, you're just 
just sitting at your desk. And obviously, I'm talking about a specific class of, of workers, right? Like, there's obviously certain jobs that have to be done in person, and I get all that. Um, but my experience is most of the time, you can, if you can find a quiet, distraction-free place to work independently, you'll get your best work done. And then the best companies figure out time and space and ways for people to work together when they need to. So they'll bring their teams together for offsites more often, and they'll get that collaboration, and they'll get that connection. But in person all the time, just... I, I I think that is an outdated way of working things. So I think over time it will slowly evolve and it'll be less and less a norm. And for companies and teams that really crave that, they'll be able to go to companies that do that, but that will not be the dominant way of working. I, I just don't think it's not how the world is anymore. So if you have a founder that's, you know, like, Matt, I get you and I'm, I'm trying to adapt to this, but I'm struggling to build relationships and build connections with my people remotely. Like, are there some practical things that you can advise them on to, to actually do? It's really hard. You know, when I was at DigitalOcean and I worked there from 2015 to 2019, so we'll call it pre-pandemic, we were a fairly distributed team even then, even before we had to be. And you're totally right. It is harder to build relationships and get to know people remotely. It's not impossible. It's harder. Um, there's lots of other trade-offs that are good about working remotely. Obviously, you can get better access to talent. People have more time. They don't have to commute. But that's one of the downsides. And so what do you do? You just you have to work harder to build relationships. And so what we did is we spent more time and money having people meet in person at the very beginning when they first started. So people's first week in a job, they would spend it with their team and their manager. Once a quarter, we would bring offsites. Like, you can do it. You just have to intentionally build in, whether it's time on our Zoom one-on-one -on -one to get to know each other and ask about your personal life or more time in person. You just... You have to do it, right? You have to intentionally find the time to ask questions, get to know them, carve out space in the one-on-ones, and invest time and money in bringing the people together so that you get all that stuff, which you're totally right about. It's super, super important. So if you think about the idea that you're saving money by not having a traditional office, well, you can redeploy that towards more travel or more offsites or whatnot, and you'll still save money in the end, but it's not a, a total net savings. But again, these are all things that create better connection, better performance, better productivity, all that stuff. It's, it's, it's really, really important. You can't just like assume you're going to do things in the same way. You have to do things differently because things are different, but it's okay. Yeah. I think sometimes it's that difficulty is the fact that, oh, this seems so hard and then people can just lean back into, let's do things that we've always done. Like you said, a lot of times it's actually, you push, you push past that barrier, you don't get to really see the benefits, really, no, to see them, fulfill the benefits that it becomes for your organization, for your people. And Something that you said earlier around not being traditional. And it reminded me of, I listened to a podcast with um, Seth Golden a couple of days ago. He talked about colleges and how the fact that whole model needs to change and shift. I remember I read something, I think you wrote or you said about colleges are not like, you don't think it's a great financial investment. And I was absolutely curious about that, like to really lead into a bit more into that to find out your take on it and how you see things. You know, it's it's funny because one of my daughters is in our senior year of high school applying to college. And, um, you know, obviously where we think it's right for her. I think, you know, it is the right investment for a lot of jobs, right? It's being seen just as much as kind of a signifier as a marker obviously college is extraordinarily expensive and I think there's lots of reasons and ways why it could be less so but there's lots of great schools that are that are less expensive and I think college are getting much better kind of giving need-based aid to the right people but the bigger question is like what is college for I think for the majority of people college is not necessarily like a trade school where you learn to do this and do it you know the best colleges teach you how to think critically they teach you how to 
build relationships. They teach you how to be independent. Those are actually really good skills to work with. You know, most people, the jobs they're doing, and again, I'm talking about like a certain type of like white collar class, obviously, are not doing what their major was. And that's fine, right? Because people are going to have a number of careers are going to shift and they're going to like, I certainly have different types of careers, uh, none of which was directly related to my major, quite honestly. It was really more kind of my grad school type of stuff. But I think being, you know, learning how to do research, uh, learning how to think critically, those are really, really important skills in any job. Uh, at the same time, there are certain type of jobs where college is probably not the right decision for most people. And I would not encourage like getting into significant debt if you're interested in certain type of careers. And I actually think we have to remove the stigma around not going to college because like I said, college is seen as kind of like a signifier of marker or something it shouldn't be. And there's lots of super, super talented people who don't need to go to college and didn't. And I think that stuff needs to change as well. I think we have to remove that stigma. You know, one of the founders of Digilition, I don't think at the time completed college and he's certainly successful and one of the smartest and most brilliant people I know and that's fine. I think people need to be really clear about what they want to do and find the right path and I think all of us and I certainly do this like in the hiring mode and I hire lots of people and help work because hire a lot of people try not to kind of bias where someone went to college or, or what they did. I think if you go to the right school it can help you but it doesn't in any way indicate like a type of successor is necessary for success in lots of careers and I think it's fine. It, it It's a super super big investment and I wouldn't encourage people who don't need it to do it. So if I'm not using college degrees as a separator when it comes to recruiting talent. What are some of the key things that as a founder, as a leader that I can tap into to really get the best people for my organization to get that great culture that you talked about at the start. It's funny that you asked that. You know, there's there's a company I work with a portfolio called Interviewing IO, and they're all about finding alternative ways of evaluating engineering talent. Traditionally, the top companies like I think your Google, your Apple, Amazon, like they wouldn't even look at candidates unless they went to a very, very select college, right? Which is ridiculous because that has no indication about how well they can code. Like what if you actually looked at how well they could code, right? And that's all about kind of what Alina and her company is doing. Um, and they're finding much, much broader access sound because they actually use a metric that actually works, which is they actually test their ability to do the job. So the number one thing that I tell anyone who's hiring is like, instead of looking at, did they go to an Ivy League school or did they go to a school with a great football program? Like there is all sorts of bias and privilege and for all the reasons you and I just talked about and privilege involved in kind of like that as your metric for whether someone's going to be a good job. Like actually find a way to come up with an interview process that actually reflects, can you do the work? And there's lots of good ways to do that. Obviously, interviewing IO does it with engineering. There's lots of ways to test, can someone actually do the work? So that's the number one predictor. Um, stop looking at college uh, where they went. It, it doesn't actually predict anything. In terms of like specific characteristics, I look for people who are curious, always willing to learn. One of the questions I always ask in an interview, maybe I'm giving it away, but that's okay. It's like, I always ask like, what do you want to get better at? I'm looking for candidates and people who are always trying to get that 1% better every day and have enough kind of self-awareness and humility to know that like everyone is a continued work in progress. So that's a characteristic I look for. Are they able to be team players? Like I said, you know, I am not a big fan of people who kind of do it on their own, no matter how talented they are. Like, you've got to be able to work together on a team. So I look for evidence or, you know, how they talk about their big successes. Was it a team success? What an individual success? Are they always curious? Are they asking questions? That to me, if you think about like how quickly the world is moving, right? The idea that like what you know now and the way you do things now and what your company does now is going to be exactly the same in like two, three years. Like, there's just no way that's true. People who are really kind of resilient 
resilient and looking for weight resilient and, and comfortable working in changing environments and curious about how things can change and don't just say this is how we did in the past here's how we're going to do it in the future that's really appealing to me obviously like people who are successful have you know a playbook and they're kind of certain ways that they go about things and I think that's really helpful but you can't apply it set in stone you've got to take what work and adapt it to changing times and so people who are really successful are able to kind of take their playbook and recognize that like they've got to take the basics but it's going to be a different the framework is the same but the way you adapt it and the future is way different. So I look for evidence when I interview and hire about people who have that kind of flexibility and curiosity because I think it's, it's really, really critical. I'm going to make a, an assumption, if I'm wrong, but I'm going to assume that you haven't always got it right and you sometimes made some mistakes. Oh my <laughs> God. Screw things up on a regular basis. <laughs> how Never. do you when, you, when that happens, when that's happened in the past, even the first time that happened to you, how did you react and how quickly did you do, do something about it? Because something I've seen stomp a lot of leaders, especially founders, are like, my question, I made a mistake. How do I do it? So how have you actually dealt with that? Yeah, I'll answer your question. I'm going to kind of take a little bit of a detour, but I promise I'll get to the question. You know, one of the things that we talked about earlier that I said I, I realized about me is I do much better in kind of a smaller startup, more agile environment. You know, I spent the first part of my career in big companies where you were actually punished for making mistakes. And I make a lot of mistakes because I like to take risks and I like to try new stuff. And sometimes it works out really well. And point. Sometimes it really, really doesn't. And what's interesting is in big corporations, you're actually really punished for making mistakes. And what that turns into is people are afraid to take risks. And that's why most of the innovation doesn't have in these big, big companies. And for someone like me, that just was not a place where I could do my best work. So the first startup I ever worked at was like, I told you this place called Return Path. And I was just really lucky that a founder who believed in creating a really safe, environment for making mistakes um, because he wanted people to take risks and he wanted people to kind of try to do their best work. And that is the most important thing. You need to be in an environment that supports taking risks and making mistakes um, or you'll never get the best work of people. You'll never get those kind of big, big leaps that can really transform a, a business or a person. Um, so me personally, like I had made so many mistakes. Like I'm very, very comfortable making mistakes. I think the key thing is to recognize quickly that you made a mistake. And being able to kind of say, here's what I did. Here's why it didn't work. Most importantly, here's what I'm going to do differently next time. Um, and sometimes you can't do that yourself. You actually really need to create what we talked about earlier, like that culture of feedback where you can have someone give you that so that you can learn from it. In any type of environment, making the same mistake over and over again is, is really problematic. And that speaks to that whole idea, like you actually don't have the learning mindset. You're not actually learning from your mistakes. I think the recognition that like everyone is going to screw up at times, it's okay. It's a hallmark of kind of taking risks. And then being able to either ask for feedback or have that self-introspection about why that happened and what you're going to do differently. And then course correct is, is probably, you know, don't get hung up on it. Everyone screws up. It's really what you do about it and how you're able to move forward. Uh, that makes a difference. And some companies create a really great space for that. Some companies don't. And so you've got to find that kind of inner fortitude to kind of not, you know, let it get you down and, and move forward. I know that's kind of a cliche, but I think it's really important. Um, the idea that everyone is a continued work in progress is, is so, so important. And once you kind of accept that at your baseline, making mistakes is, is a natural kind of evolution from that. If you haven't already, can you please follow the podcast? It really helps us grow and it tells the apps that it's the podcast worth listening to, which the fact that you're listening to means that it is and other people need to know about it. In Apple Podcasts, if you click the three dots in the top right of your app, look for the follow button and click on it. And in Spotify, the follow button should be just below the show's artwork. Now let's get back into today's episode. Did you always know that you're a 
bit of a risk taker always, or is that something you discovered when you worked in corporate? In some ways, I, I'm actually, I probably didn't kind of phrase it right. I'm not the biggest risk taker in lots of ways. I can be pretty risk averse, but I do really like to try new stuff. So maybe that is kind of within its own little container, a little bit risky. I've always known that. I personally get really energized by coming up with new ways of doing stuff. Um, so I've always kind of figured out that about myself, and that's why certain types of environments worked really well for me and certain types didn't. For example, like high school is not really a place where risk-taking is rewarded, right? Um, uh, you actually get rewarded for doing things exactly the way that the book says, exactly the way that the teacher wants, and these kind of outliers, especially in high school, are kind of like pushed down and molded to be just like everyone else. Right. And it really is kind of in colleges and other places where you can start to boss them. So, yeah, I kind of did. But again, I really believe that environment is, is such a big uh, impact on it. And I really need to be in the right environment for, for that type of behavior to, to be appreciated, at least for me. I'm curious. Um, you were talking around critical thinking and even the way they just talk about knowing the environments that are important to you for me it goes back into um how you think and how you process what's your take on ai and people and that link that you're seeing happening i mean it's super cool obviously i'm i'm going into chat gpt i'm going into dolly i'm i'm playing around with it just like everyone else it's it's really cool but i think most people have yet to realize because it's so magical and that is exactly the right word to describe it is that all it is is a statistical amalgamation of what humans have actually done. So all it really does is figure out the most likely word to come after the next word based on the creative work of everyone before. And that doesn't take away from the insane technology advancements and, and all the magic that goes into it. But if we only over if we over rely on AI and that's only what we do, we'll never actually make the advancement because you really need kind of that. that it hasn't maybe it will in a few years, like who knows, like at the pace of technology. But you really need that kind of creative spark to kind of advance it. Um, you know, certainly in the art side, there's real issues about kind of appropriating like actual artist work without credit and i think you can see that on the written side too obviously if there's a ton of information out there that's factually incorrect but that's the dominant source of information the ai is going to reflect that and you see that examples where it doesn't quite get things factually right it's just looking at the most likely thing where they're right so those in theory are solvable technological problems but i don't think from a creative standpoint it will ever catch up by design it's only built to work off what what previously exists and so we'll see what that looks like as more ai generated content gets out there and then the ai picks up that ai so kind of integrates that cycle and i'm curious to see kind of what that looks like at the same time i think there's interesting applications where there's probably some work that doesn't need to be done by people anymore what does that mean? Uh, does it create more opportunity for a more creative type of work? Does it mean everyone moves into more service environments? Does it reframe the nature of just how we work as society in person? Like, I think those are really important questions for a society to think through. I haven't quite, <laughs> quite figured that one out myself yet. I think it's probably for smarter or more important people than me to figure out. But I do think it, it raises interesting questions about like what our relationship to the work is and how we think about issues of authorship and creativity and, and what our place in that, that whole scheme is. Now, I don't know. Super interesting though. So you got AI, you've got COVID, major disruptions happening right now in the in the employment world. What are some of the things that you can see coming down the pipeline um, in terms of disruptions into that um, that space? I mean, that's the two million dollar question. If we knew that, I'll be super rich. I I do think kind of the, the you know we talked a little about this. I think the shift to more and more distributed work is is a continued one. I think like anything else, the pendulum will shift. There'll be a pushback, but I think 
that's an actual shift to, to remote work. I, I just think it's such a better way of working for, for most people. I think, again, the fact that AI can do things that couldn't be done before for a lot of people will reframe like how they work. I think more and more people will work into move into kind of service type of jobs. And that's actually interesting because most service jobs can't be done remotely. When is that done? Maybe the technology kind of figures out a way to do that. I hope that some of the changes allow people to reevaluate like how much time they need to spend working versus other things that might be beneficial for society. I'm not super optimistic about that one, but I'd, I'd love to see it over time because I think there's probably some unhealthy balance for a lot of people. I don't know. I think a lot of things are about, you know, what's really clear is in the past, say, three to five years, a lot of traditionally held assumptions about how work has to be have just been completely shattered in a really short amount of time. And you think about kind of like the pace of change in our league. So I think the next five to 10 years will continue to shift in ways that we can't predict. But I, the only thing I can predict is it will continue to shift very, very rapidly. And people need to be ready for that. And hopefully kind of our societal and our government institutions are are which don't typically move that quickly are sorry anything about how they support people as as that changes over time. Thinking about change in terms of um, startups. So one thing that I've definitely seen with a lot of startups as they grow, that they're growing really quickly, let's say, I don't know whether it's funding or even COVID, whatever come out, they tend to hire really, really, really quickly. And training, development, a lot of things kind of go out the window or they're left way, way behind that you end up having a lot of people hired in a company very short space of time who don't actually have the right, let's say the skills, but right training and development in place. And it takes a while to kind of catch up, which then creates some future problems down the line, which you've also seen play out with some of the layoffs that's happened in the tech industry. Is there, is there something that, based on your experience, because you've worked with in the industry for a while, is there a way that founders, startups in particular, can actually mitigate some of that imbalance to make sure it doesn't happen yep. again? I think it's such a great question. You know, there's a kind of a maxim that a lot of startups say, hire fast, fire fast. And I'm not a believer in either of those things, right? You can hire well with speed, but that doesn't mean that you kind of just throw stuff against the wall and whoever doesn't work kind of gets kicked out of the organization. I think that's actually incredibly disruptive. And in lots of ways, it doesn't enable the organization to go fast as it does kind of take the time to hire right. doesn't mean you can't do things at scale. It doesn't mean you can do things with speed, but there's actually real benefits to getting the right people in and making sure they stay. Uh, you don't have the turnover. You don't have to waste time on onboarding. You don't lose that knowledge. And it goes to exactly what you're talking about. You take the time to hire, and then you also take the time to focus on growth and development. Because the company is going to change really quickly, especially with these high growth ones. And as you talk about, like things change really quickly. And if you're not investing early in development, you're going to have to replace the people because they're not going to grow as fast as the company can scale. And sometimes you have to do that, especially at senior roles. Like sometimes companies uh, outpace people's growth. But if you build in kind of development into the DNA of the organization to the very, very beginning, you actually will see more speed and efficiency over time because then people can start to grow and scale with the organization. You don't have to waste time offboarding, onboarding, rehiring, interviewing, training, all that stuff, training skills in, in that way. So I am a big believer of building and development early on to a company. What's also super interesting about that is when you think about like what, especially millennials, Gen Z, what they most want from their company is that focus on their development. So development is good because it makes your company better. It also makes you more attractive to the best candidates and they're more likely for them to stay because they crave that. One of the most important things that I tell companies to do is invest early in development. That doesn't mean that you have to hire kind of an internal L&D team. I've actually seen really great success with companies. Like there's a company we work with called Mento, which kind of 
is an outsourced mentoring and coaching platform where you can get matched up with a, a much broader array of kind of skills and talent that you have internally. That actually is programs like that and companies like that work really, really well for early stage because they don't have that kind of capability. And, you know, you're not going to have enough senior people who have time to mentor a coach. Um, and it's fine to outsource that stuff. That's why companies like Mentor are really, really good. And, and there's certainly plenty of others as well. But the idea is that you're building in a belief and a value of coaching and mentoring and development early on from the very, very beginning. Like I said, whether it's an outsourced company, it's whether you just kind of bake that into how you give feedback and coach people on your team. That is one of the best things you can do to mitigate against advanced changes, create that learning mindset early on. So I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what the best companies do, at least in my experience. How do you actually get founders to realize that or to understand that? Because it's not, it's not straightforward. <laughs> some do, some don't. I mean, that's a challenge I've done anyone's. I can only speak to my specific experience. You know, when I first started even at, at DigitalOcean, which was a super high growth early company the area that i focused on first was not recruiting was actually development i was lucky to bring in this incredibly talented woman who was just a extraordinarily skilled at creating you know manager training programs and we did that before we focused on building up recruiting because we need to create the framework right so if we didn't teach our managers how to hire if we didn't teach our managers how to coach if we didn't teach our managers how to develop we could get all the recruiters in the world and we would get people in, but they wouldn't know how to assess the right people and they wouldn't be able to keep them. They wouldn't be able to grow them. They would just turn out. We'd have to do it again. So that's a experience of one, but it obviously worked out, you know, in terms of the growth of that company, which is now a successful public organization. I can share the research. I can share my own experience. Uh, some, what I find though, and this kind of talk, you know, ties to what we were chatting at earlier. Sometimes founders need to kind of make their own mistakes before they, they realize it. And so I'm a big, big believer of not telling people what to do i am a big believer like here's my experience here's why i think this way you've got to kind of figure it out for yourself and you may have to make a mistake and learn from that way and it sucks like i'd rather you not do it because it's better for us at the firm it's better for you to get it right the first time but it might be more lasting if you learn from your own experience and then when you do make a mistake let's talk about like why that happened and what you learned from it how you do that and yeah i, I wish i could make founders do everything i want them to do but the truth is there's plenty of times where they know more than me and maybe it's better that they don't always listen to me. I think you have to kind of create that space. I think that's from an SB essentially maybe so that maybe they just miss sometimes because you have to fail. You have to figure that that's where the missing comes from. Is there so much they can take you just and solid and something to be that and step into for yourself that lesson is there. When they give all that, the messing actually stay still. And um middle of the round. Embedding that kind of culture right from the start with leaders to really understand that talent development piece. And I was curious, um, something I've obviously looked at from 13, something that you also talk about a lot is around that DI and embedding that into organizations right from the start as well. How do you like broach those conversations that and gain how do you um, really get people to really understand the benefits of having that as part of the DNA right from the start as opposed to an add-on? I mean, it's super critical. We're also lucky that we can actually almost take it a step further beyond that and that we're lucky enough that we can choose, not always, but we, we always have a choice about whether we, we invest in a founder or not, right? Not that we have our pick of every founder in the world, but any investment we make, we obviously get to evaluate founders too. And so it starts with when we're looking at founders, just as much as the company and the business opportunities are these founders that we can work with and believe in and all the things we just talked about because they're so important. So if you've got a founder who's very resistant to that idea and doesn't want to take advice from anyone and doesn't believe that anything can learn to grow, it might not be a, bet fit, a, bet, a good fit for us. And so we probably wouldn't invest them in the first place. 
Uh, but assuming that you kind of have that framework, a lot of it is the conversation we talked about. What kind of company do you want to build? How are you going to get the best talent, especially early on? You know, you're not a huge name brand where you've got, you know, thousands of people knocking at the door to come work with you. And so how do you cast as wide a net as possible to make sure that you're getting access to the best talent, to different perspectives that are going to push you, are going to challenge you? And you know, I can talk about all the research that everyone else talks about. And I talk about my experience and I say, like, what do you care about? How are you going to make sure that you don't have this kind of narrow set? How are you make sure you're getting broad people? But a lot of it is sometimes they have to learn from it. Like if I think they're doing something really unethical or anything like that, like I'll put a stop to it pretty quickly. But I mean, there's so much evidence that, you know, broadening the base of your team and getting different perspective and experiences makes our more inclusive products, makes our more inclusive experiences, creates a better environment, a safer environment for a broader swath of, of people to do their best work. It's so clear that it's an easy conversation. So we talk about what practices are you putting in place and how are you making sure that you do that? Because it's really important to do it early on because the later you wait to do those type of things, the harder it is. And if you do it from the beginning, then it just becomes natural over time. And then the people you hire practice those the same approaches as well. And it's it's the same thing. It's talking about why it's really important, what I've seen work, why I've seen it work, and then giving us some some tools to to implement that in their own organizations. What are some of the say, pushbacks that you've kind of got over the years that come up in those kind of conversations that you've been able to help? I mean, there's always the usual one. We don't have time to do it this way. Um, I just need to move quickly. We'll figure it out later on or sit on corn or don't tell me what to do. And like, I get that, you know, but my belief is, is that, you know, building a startup is, it's a marathon, not a sprint. No company is as successful overnight. Even the most successful ones take years and years to kind of really get product market fit and scale. You know, once they had an inflection point, then it's kind of off to the races. And so I'm a big believer that doing things right over that length of time is actually much, much more efficient than kind of making mistakes learning from it. And look, there's value in making mistakes. We talked about this earlier. You want to kind of try things. Um, and there's a difference between trying new things and taking risks versus doing something that there's clear evidence is going to be wrong in terms of how you build your organization. So getting it right in terms of how you build your team and how you manage people will actually be quicker in the long run because you'll see more productivity. You'll see more efficiency. You'll get people up that curve faster. And so that's part of the conversation some like i said some leaders take a while to figure it out on their own some people trust us and i can kind of point to the, the data on both but again it's their company it's not ours we're, we're just investors we're there to guide them we're there to shepherd them but you know we invest in them because we believe in them we want to give them every chance to kind of build and create and realize their own vision that's some of the difference between being in an operating role versus being in an advisor role and there's benefits to that in terms of you don't have the same kind of pressure of accountability but there's also downsides you can't make them do that but I think in on balance, the best investors trust their founders and let them do it. And that's why the best investors are also good coaches themselves and good advisors themselves, because you can't make them do it. We're not a PE firm. We don't take the majority share. We take a, a small share and we, we try to use our influence to help them get better. But at the end of the day, it's still their company. I think it's a good thing. Founding teams and trying to join into really on what the best possible way. How do you decide on who goes into what? So at M13... You know, we've, we've got what we call kind of our propulsion team, which is, you know, operating experts who can go in and bring that, that experience and expertise to bear. So you've got people like me who have some operating experience on the talent and HR side. We've got 
someone with, with product experience. We've got an extraordinary marketing leader who is CMO at, at some of the biggest consumer brands you know. We, we've got a data leader. We've got a finance leader. We've got people who built and founded their own companies at the very, very senior ranks of organizations. So we have people who have actually done these type of jobs and work. And we kind of worked over really like, we've made all the mistakes. You can learn from our mistakes. And, and hopefully kind of shortcut that process a little bit. And, you know, we're the type of firm that will actually sit down and roll up our sleeves and work and work together with you side by side, which a lot of firms uh, will not do. Um, so you can get the benefit of our expertise from our mistakes. Um, and all of us love teaching and coaching and doing the work, even, you know, people who are pretty, pretty senior. It's kind of what gets us excited. And so that's how we sit down with them. And, you know, we try to understand what their issues is. And based on what they're working on, we'll, we'll hopefully figure out the right partner or the right team member to send in and do the project with them. And hopefully they benefit from our advice. This podcast is sponsored by Mindset Shift, a leadership development company focused on helping you lead from the inside out, not from the outside in. We work one-on-one with senior leaders in organizations, we work directly with HR and other parts of the organizations to help you create an authentic culture where your words and your values and your actions all align. We help you to navigate the complexity and the chaos that we all experience day in and day out. And we have a couple of openings for the one-to-one coaching this year. If that's something that you're interested in, if you want to work with a coach, who can help you navigate this year to ensure that you're intentional, to take your leadership skills personally and professionally to the next level. Send me an email at hello at mindsetshift.co.uk or just go to the website www.mindsetshift.co.uk. Now let's get back into today's episode. Is there any mistake that you made in your career that stands out to you the most that you learned the most from? I wouldn't even know where where to start with that. I think probably the biggest mistake I made is trying to fit like a square peg in a round hole, which is like I didn't realize soon enough what I was good at and where I was happiest at. I kind of just went to the big company because that's what I thought I should do. And I figured, well, I just need to change and figure out how to be successful in these type of organizations. And mistake was I probably won't be, right? The mistake was not trying other places sooner i just kept saying well this big one isn't right for me i'll try this big one or this big one is right for me i'll try this big one it it must be me it's it's not that much and so i didn't really kind of realize like i didn't have the self-awareness say this is where i'm gonna be happiest i didn't optimize for like my own happiness my own success i optimized for what i thought i should do or what i needed to do for external reasons um and that's a really hard thing you know maybe you do need to kind of get it wrong a few times to figure that out but I think that was definitely a big one is not understanding like myself and what what I needed and kind of my quirks and what made me successful and what where I was never going to be successful. And I kind of looked into it, to be totally honest. I don't know that I would have figured it out. Who knows how it would have looked like I knew it when I saw it. I might have benefited from some coaching or coaching or conversations or and I, I got very lucky. And, you know, it took a while, but luckily it worked out in the end. Now, so to reverse that, what are you most proud of? I mean, we, it's 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 what we talked about at the very beginning. I've, I've worked at three organizations at different stages in their life cycle from, you know, a company that was already pretty established and hopefully I made that even better to a company that was just starting out that had great product market fit that didn't really have much of an HR organization. And I was able to build that up from scratch into something meaningful and important and, and had a great business outcome. And now starting at almost the very, very beginning of the firm, I really am proud of kind of 
you know, I don't want to say like I built a legacy, like I'm some super important person, like I'm just HR talent guy, but I am very proud of kind of the culture and, and the legacy around kind of showing that you can build really great organizations that are great places to work that people like working with and create really meaningful relationships and also all have really good positive business outcomes showing that those two things can work really together that stuff hopefully outlasts me when i'm on to whatever is next or retired or whoever else like I, I hope that stuff really lasts and those ideas kind of replicate to other companies in the space because those two things are not in conflict you can you can create really dynamic exciting workplaces where people can do great work and feel safe and diversity is valued and appreciated and development is valued and appreciated and you can do all of those things and still have really really positive business outcomes probably because of that i think that's a really powerful message that's so needed and relevant and when i think about um so ask me a question recently what does it take to be a 21st century leader i think it's that it's understanding that fundamental that to really be able to keep on growing evolving and attracting the best talent you need there to have that the way you just kind of described it right now so really really like that 100 percent. i mean you think about the AI, right? The AI is going to take a lot of the drudge work out of work. What's going to be left? It's going to be the human stuff. And so the best, best leaders recognize that it's a human connection that really creates spark and really creates the energy. Whether you're hiring, whether you're laying off, everything in between from beginning to end, like it's all about the humans that work there. And the best, best leaders recognize that and never kind of forget that no matter how big the scale is. It's just, that's how you get, you're, that's how you're going to get the best work and the best outcomes because, you know, the technology is going to start to equivalent out, right? If everyone's using the same AI interface to do that stuff, the only thing that's going to differentiate the good companies to great ones is the quality of the people and how they work. So you've got to focus on that stuff even more. Well, last question would be, how do you define leadership? You know, there's a difference between being a manager and being a leader, being a boss and being a leader. I actually hate when my team calls me their boss. Like, um, I just, I never kind of liked it. There's a difference between telling people what to do and creating an environment where they can do their best work. And I think the best, best leaders set really clear goals, create a really compelling vision, create the environment and the space for people to do their best work. And then they kind of get out of their way. Every person on my team is extraordinary talented most of them are better at what they do than what i can right like i'm good at what i am but they're like my head of recruiting is a way better recruiter than i'll ever be and i think my secret is like i know that <laughs> i don't try to pretend otherwise but the idea is like you want to create a space where where she and they can all do their best work um and i think that's what a leader does it's creating the conditions where great people want to work for you they want to stay and they do even better than they thought possible. Uh, that's what leadership is. It's not putting people in a box and making sure they follow the rules like any idiot can do that. And so I think leadership is all about, you know, inspiring and motivating and you know, driving performance to, to really amazing levels. What a great place to finish. And um, really appreciate like this conversation. Actually, for me, it's been quiet. This was awesome. This was super yeah, fun. No, Thank I'm you. Thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it from my perspective as well. So... Thank you. All the information around Matt M13, all that's going to be available. Um, and check out Matt on Azure 13. Matt does writing sometimes, which are um, really good articles. That's what we really enjoyed. And it's a different publication. What the number of ones recently of that. Actually, that's really interesting. And so I highly recommend that. But yeah, it's everything leadership. We'll see you next week. While you're still recovering from that, amazing conversation let me give a quick preview of what we got coming up next week make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out i actually really wanted to be a psychologist in high school 
So it started, there was a program in my high school that was about teaching peer leaders to be um, kind of supporting other high school students. And you had to go through this training and learn all about it. And then they wanted you to sit in an office and have office hours after you went to this training. And so I went to the training and I remember thinking, there is no way that another high school student is gonna come into an office and talk to a peer like in a therapeutic setting. 